Proverbs chapter 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O you simple ones, understand prudence, and you fools, be an understanding heart. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things, and from the opening of my lips will come right things. For my mouth will speak truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. They are all plain to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than rubies and all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. Proverbs chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Uh, now, with your Bibles open, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We are coming to the conclusion of Paul's introduction to this letter. Chapter 1 is really an introduction and... In verses 18 through 20, we have Paul's personal charge to Timothy. Paul's personal charge to Timothy. And why don't we just begin at verse 1 here. And let me read down and uh, go through the entire chapter. That way you will have uh, the context in your mind. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me 
because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected, concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So this is Paul's conclusion to his introduction. He connects what he says here in verses 18 through 20 with how he began this introduction with the word charge. The charge that Timothy was given or, or that Timothy is to give the false teachers is found in verse 3. You see that there in verse 3. It says that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And this charge that's in verse 3 is connected here to the charge that Paul gives Timothy in verse 18. In verse 3, Timothy is to charge in verse 18, Paul is charging Timothy with this very thing. So this charge is related to the problem in the church, the problem with the church of Ephesus. And the problem is so great, Paul sends one of his personal representatives, one of his hand-picked men, Timothy, to straighten things out. Timothy's marching orders are to confront the false teachers in the church. He is to confront them with what they are doing, and he is to do so in a loving manner, in a manner that will move these false teachers from self-serving and self-aggrandizement to an attitude of love. And when we investigate this problem, we really see that there are two problems in the church of Ephesus. There's a doctrinal problem and there's an attitude problem. And we know from the book of Revelation, when we look at the beginning of chapter 2, the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia, these letters are from Jesus Christ himself. And as Jesus Christ addresses the church of Ephesus, he says... In Revelation 2, verses 2 through 3 and verse 6, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear with those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. 
You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. But in verse 6, it also says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So we see here that uh, the church of Ephesus seems to have dealt sufficiently with the doctrinal problem that they had. However, they are continued to be plagued by their attitude problem. Because in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus says, You have lost your first love. And this is a, one of the great dilemmas that faces the church is not only the doctrinal issues, but the attitudinal issues that those in the church have I was speaking with uh, Frank Hamrick earlier this week, and we were chatting about the church of Ephesus and the position that they were in when they received the, the letter from the Lord in the book of Revelation. They were doctrinally sound, but spiritually cold. Uh, Frank mentioned to me that he knew a church in the past that was doctrinally very sound, biblically educated, but their attitude had grown cold. This seems to be what has happened in Ephesus as the Lord addresses them. They knew their Bible, they knew their doctrine, but their attitude was wrong. And I see this as one of the potential pitfalls for a church like ours. Our church came into existence because of a great doctrinal error. There were those who were accepting that error, and there were those who would not tolerate it. And as different pastors came along into this church, they maintained an allegiance to the Bible and an allegiance to the God of the Bible. And they did this through preaching and teaching the Bible. And so I just want you to see us today here at Crossroads Baptist Church, we're not all that different than the church of Ephesus. But there's a danger that we see that faced the church in Ephesus, and this same danger is what we face today, that our doctrinal correctness might turn into spiritual dullness. Uh, we can hold a high view of the Bible. We can preach and teach the Bible we can do it in our service, we can do it in our Sunday school classes, and not have an attitude of love. The attitude of love says, love God first, love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and finally, love the lost. Can we say this morning, that is our attitude? The Bible is very clear on this issue. And in 1 John, it says, if we don't love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't love God. And so this is a potential danger for our church and for any church that holds to the Bible. Now, you have heard me say repeatedly this paradigm, head, hands, heart, head, hands, heart. In order to feel right, you have to do right. In order to do right, you have to know right. And so the order is know right, do right, feel right. Now, I want to add a little bit of a twist to this, and this is a, a um, Frank Hamrick-ism. So this is a Hamrick-ism. 
he took a little bit of a twist on this idea and he used the letter A. He said academic, and I think I have this right. If it sounds good, give him credit. If it sounds wrong, blame me. So here's the, here's the ism, here's the hammerkism. Academics, attitude, action. Academics, attitude, action. Academics speak of what you know. It speaks of your Bible knowledge, what is going on in your head. Attitude speaks of what you feel, your thoughts towards someone, what's going on in your heart. And actions speak of what you're doing, your obedience to the Bible, your obedience to God, what you are doing with your hands, how you are putting into action your knowledge and attitude. And I would submit to you that this is the formula for pleasing God. Now, I didn't get this from Frank, so you can't uh, blame him for this. But this is the formula for pleasing God. Right academics, right Bible understanding, plus right attitude, plus right actions, plus obedience, equals I'm pleasing to God. And whenever you eliminate any part of that formula, you get the answer wrong. For example, if you have wrong doctrine, even though you're very loving to people, even though you're very active in meeting the needs of people, you don't know what God says. You don't know what God says, and therefore you're unable to rightly obey God, even though you're doing everything you're doing out of love. Also, this is another example of this uh, formula not being followed, is you have right doctrine but a wrong attitude, and even have right actions. And when you have those, it just equals spiritual dullness. Doing things just to be right. Knowing what is right, but not allowing it to affect my attitude. So here's the formula again. A plus B plus C equals D. You have to start with A. Right academics, right Bible knowledge. You add to A, B, having a right attitude, a right attitude towards God, a right attitude towards my brothers and sisters in Christ, and a right attitude towards the world around us. And to A and B, you add C, doing right, being obedient to what you know. And when you add these things up, it equals I'm pleasing to God. So this is really a challenge for Timothy because so, he needs to bring the church to this point, but he also needs to make sure he is personally pleasing to God. Not just that he brings to the church to be pleasing to God, but that he is personally pleasing to God. And this morning we will see four things. We're going to see four things as related to Paul's charge to Timothy to do these things. Number one, we're going to see the purpose of the charge. Number two, we're going to see the preparation for accomplishing the charge. Number three, we're going to see the process of the charge. And number four, we're going to see the picture. The picture of failing. The picture 
of failing. So let's look at number one, the purpose of the charge. The purpose of the charge, this is in verse 18, it is fight the good fight. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. He's telling Timothy the purpose of the charge is I want you to fight the good fight. Fight this battle. Look at the beginning of verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy. And as we've already noted, the word charge here connects what Paul says here all the way back to the beginning of his introduction where he tells Timothy, you're there in Ephesus so that you may charge those who teach other doctrine. So this is a charge for Timothy to stop the ones who are teaching other doctrines, stop the ones who are paying attention to Jewish myths and genealogies. So this charge is a call to action. Paul is telling Timothy, you must act. Secondly, in verse 18, look at the end of verse 18. It says, for by them you may wage the good warfare. So this is combat. It's combat. Standing for the faith, standing for true doctrine, standing for a correct attitude is warfare. Engaging in this is like engaging in combat. Paul uses a similar phrase to this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. We're, we're very close to that, so let's turn over to it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Paul, in his last words to Timothy, this is, could be the last letter Paul ever wrote. He says to Timothy... I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So he uses that phrase, I have fought the good fight. That's very similar. It's not exactly the same, but it's, it's very similar to the phrase that we see here. Uh, the difference being that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul's metaphor is athletics. That's his metaphor that he's using. I've fought the good fight. So it's a it's a boxing metaphor. Whereas in our verse here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it is the metaphor of combat. It is the metaphor of warfare. So Paul is letting Timothy know this task that I am charging you with is not going to be easy. And Paul knows not only is the task going to be hard, but it's going to be hard on Timothy. But it is the right thing to do. Think about the words combat, warfare, fight. Those words within themselves have the idea of difficulty. Difficulty. It is hard. That's, that's even why when you have an athletic event, High school, college, you know, you, you have the big football game on Friday night or whatever the event is, and the band comes out and the band's playing their song and, and the, the band is sitting in the stands and they want their team to uh, really do better and they want to encourage them, they want to lift their spirits. And what do they play? They play a song called the fight song. The fight now, are they asking the football team to throw down with the other football team 
and go to fists? No. They're just telling them, we want you to play hard. We know this is a difficult thing. And so the word fight, the word combat, the word warfare, in and of itself means there's going to have to be extraordinary effort given in this activity. If it was going to be easy, anybody could do it. Warfare requires extreme physical and mental exertion. I don't know a single person who has been in combat who was not totally and absolutely drained by their experience, physically, emotionally, and mentally. They had to push their bodies and minds beyond ordinary limits. They had to push themselves beyond exhaustion to accomplish their mission. Paul's purpose for Timothy in giving him this charge is that he would fight the good fight, that he would war, wage good warfare, that he would be a good soldier in combat, in battle. And so that's the purpose of the charge. Secondly, we see also in verse 18, the preparation for accomplishing the charge. The preparation for accomplishing the charge. We see this in the words about prophecy that were made about Timothy. Look in the middle of verse uh, 18. It says, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you. Now, what are the prophecies that Paul is referring to here? What are these prophecies? Well, here's what we know from the text here. First, we know that there, there were more than one. There's more than one. It says prophecies, plural prophecies. Secondly, we know that these prophecies were given at some point in time in the past. They were given before this moment, before this moment. Thirdly, they were given about Timothy specifically. They are particular and personal. They were given, they were made concerning you, Timothy. And these prophecies have a relevance to this exact situation. It says that by them, by what? By these prophecies previously made, you may wage the good warfare. Now, we have no way of knowing what these prophecies were exactly. The Bible does not tell us but we know how they relate to this particular context from what the words of scripture say. And they are related to Paul's um, uh, preparation, telling Timothy he is prepared to carry out this charge. He is prepared for accomplishing his mission. Now, why does Paul mention these prophecies to Timothy? Why does he mention these? Well, he's letting Timothy know that he has been supernaturally prepared for this kind of ministry. Prophecy is a direct revelation from God. It is supernatural communication. It contains information that would be otherwise unknown. So prophecy is supernatural, and it's supernaturally from God. And these supernatural communications are about Timothy about his ministry, whether they're about Timothy and his ministry in general or specifically, we don't know, but what we do know is they apply exactly to this 
situation. Paul is letting Timothy know that he has everything he needs to accomplish this ministry. He has everything he needs to face these false teachers to minister in this church. Being prepared for conflict, and even more so, knowing you're prepared for conflict can be a real boost to morale. It can be very encouraging. It can give you confidence for that time when you have to step into the line of fire. Uh, in the military, when you are preparing for combat, it is nice to know that you have everything you could possibly need. You have every piece of equipment you could possibly need and that you have been trained properly on how to use all of that equipment. That gives you great confidence. When you know this, when you know I got everything I need, I know how to use everything at my disposal, your level of confidence confidence rises so that when you face whatever is out there, whatever it is you have to go up against, you know you can accomplish your mission. This is what Paul is telling Timothy here. He says you've been prepared, and this is a supernatural preparation. Paul is telling Timothy, you have this. You got this. You can do this. You have everything you need. And these things that have been provided to you did not come naturally, but supernaturally from God. So Paul tells Timothy the purpose of his charge. He tells him that he is prepared for accomplishing the mission that he has. And number three there, Roman numeral number three in your notes, we see the process of the charge, the process of the charge. This is at the beginning of verse 19. It says, having faith and a good conscience. Having faith and a good conscience. Now, this word having, the first word there in verse 19. Okay, I'm going to geek out on you a little bit, but just bear with me. This is what we call an adverbial participle. And what adverbial participles do... Now you can forget about that, but they tell us how something is to be done. They tell us how the action is to be accomplished. And so Paul is telling Timothy how he is to wage the good warfare. How? And so this is the process of the charge. And so how is this con combat to be conducted? How is Timothy to fight? How is Timothy to wage warfare? It says, faith and a good conscience. I would translate it as with faith and with a good conscience. Well, what does it mean that you are to fight with faith? It means that Timothy is to trust in God. He is not to go out on his own thinking that he can handle this problem and these people on his own. He can't. Even though he has been provided everything he needs, he still has to trust God. Even with these prophecies about him, this supernatural 
knowledge from God. He is insufficient for the task without God if he doesn't trust in God. How often do we forget to rely upon God for whatever we are doing? How often do we, have fail, that, do we fail to admit to God that we need his help and that we cannot do anything without him? This is not only relevant to the ministries of the church, but to everyday life. You know, the Christian life is a life of ministry. The Christian life is a life of ministry. As a Christian, you are not fundamentally living life as just another person. As a resident of Rocky Mountain, as a resident of North Carolina, as a resident of the United States, you are living life as a follower of Jesus Christ. And that means every day is ministry day. Every day is service day. And so Timothy has to fight, but his fighting requires him to trust in God, to rely upon God. How many, of you do you, how many of you remember the war on terror back in the beginning? There was a big debate over using enhanced interrogation techniques. I think that was the phrase used. Other people just said torture. Big debate, big, big debate over that. And what was the big deal? What were people so concerned about? They were concerned that we were lowering ourselves to that of what our enemies were doing, to having the same outlook on life and right and wrong as our enemies. And so would it be right for us to act like the Taliban, rounding up people who disagreed with us and say, you can agree or die. If you don't agree, we'll just chop your head off and then there'll be less people who disagree with us. Is that the right approach to fighting this warfare that Timothy is to fight? Is this the right approach to Christian ministry? You know, while we can be doctrinally correct, and while it is necessary to be doctrinally correct, both personally and as a church, if the end goal is simply to bring everybody into doctrinal correctness with no consideration to the people who need the correction, we will win the argument. If it's about doctrinal correctness, we will win the argument, but we will lose the people. We will lose the people. It matters how we fight. Paul is telling Timothy, you are in combat, you are in a battle, but it matters how you fight this battle. It matters how we fight because God's goal is more than doctrinal correctness. His goal is to convince people of the truth, not to coerce them to say that they believe the truth, not to force them, not to torture them into submission. God wants people to see the truth and choose it. The way that Timothy is to fight is by trusting in God and by maintaining a good conscience. So he can say with a clear conscience before God, I have done the right thing. I have done the thing pleasing to you. 
And so we have the process. We, we see how Timothy is to fight. Finally, we have the picture of failing. The picture of failing. If Timothy is to be in combat, if Timothy is to fight the good fight, and he is to fight in a specific way, if he is to do these things, well, what does failure look like? What happens when you don't? fight the good fight, when you don't trust God, and when you don't have a good conscience. Verse, the end of verse 19, end of verse 20. Pick it up right there in the middle of verse 19. Which some, having rejected, and the thing they rejected is faith and a good conscience, concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, who are Hymenaeus and Alexander? Do you know anybody named Hymenaeus? <laughs> no, no. Nobody's going to name their kid Hymenaeus for all sorts of reasons. But one of them is probably that he's not a good guy here in the Bible. So what do we know about these two men? What do we know about them? Let's look, at our, let's look right at the text. Let's see what the text says. Number one, the first thing we see is they are not the only ones. They are not the only ones who have failed. They are part of a group. Uh, notice at the beginning of verse 20. It says, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander? So there's a larger group of people who have failed, but Hymenaeus and Alexander, uh, Alexander are probably the most prominent examples. It is possible, now, and so this is my opinion, okay? So this isn't inspired in any way, it's just right. You know, you'll get that. <laughs> so this is my opinion that Hymenaeus and Alexander were probably elders in the church of Ephesus, and that's why Paul is using them as an example of people who have failed. And uh, so they're a part of a group of false teachers who have pushed aside, pushed aside faith and a good conscience and are shipwrecked. So that's what we know about these two men. Now let's look at them a little bit more closely, uh, each one in turn. So Hymenaeus. Hymenaeus was only mentioned one other time in the Bible. It's in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. We might as well turn there. It's right there pretty close. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. says this. And their message will spread like cancer. Talking about false teachers. Their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. Now look at verse 18 who have strayed concerning the truth. They're not holding to the truth. This is how they strayed, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. The false doctrine of Hymenaeus was his teaching that the resurrection had already happened. Now, this is not talking about the resurrection of the Christ. This is talking about the resurrection of believers. So this is what he's saying. The resurrection, the resurrection of the believers has already happened. 
And by doing this, he overturns the faith of some. He totally wrecks some people's faith. Now, why is this important? Why is this particular doctrine important? You know, today, many people ignore or treat superficially the doctrine of end times, uh, the doctrine of what we call eschatology, last things. But here we see that this doctrine of end times, if it is corrupted, if it is held in error, it can overthrow the faith of some. So, let me ask you a question. Is the doctrine of end times, is eschatology important? Absolutely. Because to get it wrong can ruin someone's faith. So, um, we have this false doctrine that is being taught by Hymenaeus and Philetus. This seems to be the false doctrine or the main false doctrine that he teaches. And uh, Paul is telling Timothy, this is one of the people that you have to charge that they teach no other doctrine. He's saying you have to charge Hymenaeus. He puts a name to the person a name to the false teacher, you have to teach Hymenaeus to hold no other doctrine. And so we can conclude that at least one of the doctrines that the church in Ephesus was in danger of, error, of going into error on was the doctrine of eschatology. At a minimum, we can say that Hymenaeus has strayed uh, from the truth about end times. And, and Paul doesn't treat this lightly, as we're going to uh, see. He doesn't treat eschatology, he doesn't treat end times doctrines as some kind of secondary issue. You, you can't say, I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. You can't say that, because the Bible says something about the millennium. And you're either right or wrong about it. And so should we make a big deal out of eschatology? Should we separate over eschatology? And I think we would be in agreement with the Apostle Paul if we said yes. We should make a big deal out of eschatology. And we should even separate over the issue of eschatology. But I just want to point out something real quick about this whole issue of separating from people who are in error doctrinally. When someone goes into error doctrinally, we are not separating from them. They are separating from the truth. That's what's happening there. They are choosing to go in a different way. They are choosing to go away from sound doctrine. So when it comes to doctrine, if you hold to sound doctrine, you're not the one who leaves. The one in error is the one who leaves the truth. And so we have Hymenaeus as an example here. Then secondly, we have Alexander that's mentioned here. So Alexander is a common name among both Jews and Gentiles in the first century. Um, the name Alexander appears six times in the Bible, all in the New Testament, in five verses. So six times in five verses. So that's a, 
a good note to make, I'm talking to short people, a good note to make is Alexander six times five people or five verses. So, and here's, here's where it occurs. Now, we're not going to turn to all of these. We're going to turn to a couple of them, though. So, uh, first, the first time the name Alexander occurs is in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. We're not going to turn there. Uh, here, Alexander is one of the sons of Simon of Cyrene. Now, who's Simon of Cyrene? He's the man who had to pick up the cross of Jesus Christ. It, but two, both of his sons are mentioned, Alexander and Rufus. Nobody's named Rufus anymore, but he's mentioned there. Alexander and Rufus, that's the first time. Second time is in Acts chapter 4, verse 6. Acts chapter 4, verse 6. The Alexander that is mentioned here is a member of the high priestly family. He's a member of the high priestly family. The third time the name Alexander is mentioned is in Acts chapter 19, verse 33, where the Jews of Ephesus... They say, they grab Alexander and it's like, you go talk to the Gentiles. Remember, there's a big riot. They're all upset about Paul. And they, the Jews push him out there, Alexander out there, and say, you go talk to uh, the Gentiles. Tell them that we have nothing to do with Paul. Paul is not like us. We have nothing to do with him. So that's the third time. Number four is in our passage here. Number five is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. So let's turn there. That's close. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. It says, Alexander, the coppersmith, did me much harm. So that's Paul writing to Timothy again. And he says, Alexander, the coppersmith, did me much harm. So we have these five Alexanders that are mentioned here. It's very clear that the first one in Mark and the second one in Acts are individuals. They're not related to each other, nor are they related to three, four, or five. However, it seems very likely that the Alexander mentioned in Acts chapter 19 and then the Alexander that's mentioned in both First and Second Timothy are the same person. They're connected by the city of Ephesus. They're connected because they are Jews. And number four and five are connected because both are in opposition to the apostle Paul. So this is Alexander. He's someone who has a little bit of a track record. And notice, notice after we see these men, look a little, we've seen a little bit about them, who they are. Notice that they have rejected they have rejected something. They have rejected faith and a good conscience. Uh, the word rejected, the word rejected means to push away or push aside. The meaning of the word and the form of the word emphasizes to us that they did this themselves. They weren't co uh, coerced to do it. They did it themselves. And in order to push something aside, in order to push something away, in order to reject something, you first have to have it. And so these men didn't start in error. They started in truth, and then they pushed the truth away. This was a willful rejection. And they rejected faith. They rejected the kind of faith that Timothy is to fight with, the same trust in God. They have pushed it away. They are no longer trusting God. By the way... 
just as a quick aside here, when we look at Paul's treatment of these men, he doesn't say they lost their salvation, and he doesn't question their salvation. He treats them like wayward Christians. This shows us that Christians can fall even to no longer trusting in God. So they rejected faith, and they also reject a good conscience. Their conscience is not clear. It is seared. And now certainly there are those who hold to false doctrine, who hold to false doctrine with a good conscience. Uh, they are sincerely wrong. They don't have bad motives. But these men have no good motives they have rejected having a good conscience. They don't care. They have ulterior motives. There's no concern about sound doctrine, and they don't care about other people. They care about themselves. And so they have rejected faith and a good conscience, and this leads to the fact that they are shipwrecked concerning the faith. Their doctrinal foundation is now rubble. It is a pile of rocks. It has crashed. It doesn't do what it's intended to do. It's a disaster. Their doctrine that they received at one time being pushed away is now just a shipwreck. The phrase, the faith here uh, in verse uh, 20, excuse me, verse 19, concerning the faith having suffered shipwreck, the, the phrase the faith refers to Christian doctrine doctrine for the church. This is what is shipwrecked concerning them. It's shipwrecked. They're shipwrecked concerning the faith. They're no longer following truth. They've crashed. They've burned. They're a shipwreck. And so how does Paul react to these men? How does he react to these men? We see this in verse 20. It says, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's very similar language to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, where Paul says, I delivered such a one uh, as this over to Satan, over to Satan, that his soul may be saved. So very similar language in both cases. He is dealing with someone who claims to be a believer. And the purpose of Paul's action here is instruction, not punishment. It is instruction, not punishment. He wants them to learn a hard lesson. But he never says, you've lost your salvation. He never says, they were never saved. He's saying, I'm turning this one over to Satan. They no longer have the protection of the church community. And, and whether we know exactly how that works or not, and I don't think we do, but there's one thing we do know, that a Christian who is in fellowship with God, in fellowship with the local church community, has a spiritual protection that can be taken away. And that's what essentially what Paul is saying. We're taking this spiritual protection away. I'm turning you over to Satan, and he wants them to learn to be instructed not to blaspheme. In the beginning of this message, I spoke of the dangers of a church being doctrinally pure but spiritually dull. 
And I want you to see that the dangers that Paul is presenting in this letter to Timothy are not just dangers for a church, they are dangers for individual Christians. The dangers you face as a believer are twofold. The danger of not understanding and holding to sound doctrine and the danger of not having the right attitude. So let me give you four pieces of personal protection that you can have in facing these attacks. Remember, we're in combat here. This is combat. This is warfare. We are being attacked. Number one, you have to have the right mindset. You have to understand you're being attacked. You're being ambushed. You are in combat. You know, if you, if you don't think you can be in combat, you'll never be prepared. You will never be prepared. If you always think, well, things are just peaceful, things are okay, that's how you'll act. Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight, wage the good war warfare, you are in combat. So these dangers that we're talking of, doctrinal dangers and attitude dangers, are not passive. They are not uh, holes in the ground that we fall into. They are enemies who are attacking us, and we must engage them in combat. The battle is on whether we want it or not. And when you think about combat, what is necessary to go into combat? Number one, you have to be prepared with the right equipment. So if you have the right mindset and you know we're in combat, to be prepared to go into combat, you have to have the right equipment. So in the letter of Ephesians, I'm relying on your biblical knowledge here. In the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, what is the equipment called? The armor of God. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God. These things are the equipment. These are the tools. These are the weapons of our warfare. Secondly, you must not only be prepared, but you must be practiced. You must be practiced. You have to learn to use the things you have been equipped with. Nobody has this naturally. You have to learn to use them. You have to practice with them. You have to exercise with them. You can have the most sophisticated weapons in the world, but if you don't know how to turn it on, what good is it to you? It's a boat anchor. That's all it is. You can have the most sophisticated weapons at your disposal, but if you don't know how to use them, they are not useful to you. And so we must have the mindset that we are in combat. We have to prepare for this combat. We have everything we need for it. God has provided it, and we just need to use them. We need to use those tools. Number two, number two, after mindset, we need to understand that the manner in which we fight is as important as winning the fight. The manner in which we fight is as important as winning the fight. There are right ways and wrong ways to engage in Christian combat. You can tell a person. You can say this to a person. See if this would convince you. 
you're wrong, I'm right, and I'm going to give you ten reasons from Hebrew grammar to show you that I'm right. Now, is that going to convince you? Maybe, maybe not. But the fact of the matter is, you may very well be doctrinally and exegetically correct. But you're not fighting the battle that God wants you to fight. You're fighting so that you win, that you win the argument. You're fighting this way because you're not considering the fact that you're fighting for God. And your objective is God's objective. And God's objective is not just to win the doctrinal argument. God's objective is to win the person, to win that person over to his side. You know, we have a saying that we use that uh, emphasizes it matters how you fight. We say, kill them with kindness. Kill them with kindness. That tells us that we know that it matters how we fight. The only problem with that saying is, is we just use the first word. <laughs> Kill them. That's what, that's what we want to do. But it matters how we fight. You can be doctrinally correct, but your attitude can be wrong. And if this is the case, the end result is you're wrong. You can be doctrinally right, your attitude's wrong. In that case, you are wrong because you have not met the objective of your commander, the Lord God. Number three, we have the mindset, we have the manner. I don't have any more M's here to remember. Number three, knowing that failure is possible in this fight, we must understand that failure almost never happens due to a frontal attack. Okay, failure is possible, but the, the failure almost never comes from a frontal attack. I don't know how you boil that down into a nice catchy saying, but failure almost never comes from a frontal attack, but rather it comes from subtle covert actions that gradually erode your defenses away, even to the point where you don't even know you need to fight. You know, when the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persian Empire, they did it without firing a shot, so to speak. No combat whatsoever because the Babylonians were sleeping. They were caught sleeping. We have to understand that we have to be vigilant. Vigilant because combat is happening. And our enemy's tactics are covert and subtle. They want to create doubts in us about the Word of God. Is the Word of God true? Did Moses actually write the Pentateuch? They want, us to, cre they want to create doubts about what some people call more obscure doctrines, such we've already talked about eschatology, that everybody wants to treat as some obscure complex doctrine. Is the Bible totally inerrant? Is everything that it says true? And then they start to erode our confidence in the things that are fundamental to the Christian faith, the divinity of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus really God? Did he really die as a substitute for sin? And so they do this very subtly. 
And so how do we prevent this from happening? We prevent these subtle attacks from catching us off guard by reading our Bible. It, reading your Bible is like receiving intelligence reports about the enemy. It tells us what the enemy is doing. It tells us about our commander's plan. It tells us about the assets available that we have to use in this combat. And so when you don't look at the intelligence report, it's like you're ignoring the enemy. To not follow the leading of the spirit is like saying that intelligence report doesn't even matter. So our attack, the attacks on us come gradually. Number four, really quickly, sometimes we have to deal with these attacks immediately and decisively. When the defenses of the church have been breached, when my Christian faith has been breached, I need to deal with it immediately and decisively. And when it comes to doctrinal error, discipline must happen right away. And so Paul has charged Timothy with dealing with these false teachers and dealing with their false doctrine. And he wants him to know he is in combat, but that he has been prepared, that he needs to pay attention to how he fights. It matters how he fights because his objective is his commander's objective. It is God's objective. And for us today, we need to remember we too are in combat. And we've been prepared. We have the word of God. It gives us everything we need. God has given us his Holy Spirit who lives within us. We have everything we need to fight. But we must pay attention and we must deal with sin, deal with doctrinal error immediately and decisively. Won't you stand with me as we close in a word of prayer? Father, we give you thanks for this time that we have had in your word. And Lord, as we have looked at Paul's charge to Timothy, and we see that he has the purpose of charging him to let Timothy know that he is in combat. This is spiritual warfare. This is Christian combat. But that he has been prepared to accomplish the mission of his commander, to accomplish the mission of God. Thank you for allowing us to see this. Thank you for allowing us to see what we face today and even allowing us to see what failure looks like in Hymenaeus and Alexander. Lord, we pray that we would not follow in their footsteps. We pray that we would be faithful to you. We pray that we would maintain true doctrine, sound doctrine, and that we would maintain a right attitude. Lord, help us to do that. Lord, help us, help our love grow more and more for you and more and more for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.